What is up, everyone? My name is Adnan Shafi, and this is Pariah Nation. We're all the way in season 17, and we're almost even done, guys. We're, this is episode three out of four. Um, I mean, you'll see what happens next week, but I have a really, really special episode in store. And the same thing for this week, we're going to be talking about a topic that might or might not actually ruffle a few feathers over here. And we're going to be discussing the concept of what I would like to term diaspora and privilege. So what exactly is diaspora and privilege? And I would basically just sort of sum it up to this. Obviously, due to colonialism and neocolonialism, coupled with also weak leadership and other things like that, we find that people generally living in the West have been endowed with greater amounts of resources and access to facilities that, for example, people on the African continent, not many would actually have the same level or the degree of access that they do have to these facilities. But at the same time, they also might not even have access to those facilities as well, depending on where you are. And this is not by all means the story of Africa as a whole, but there's a considerable amount of people that are affected by this power dynamic. And it has a lot to do with imperialism. It has a lot to do with the IMF, the World Bank, their loans, uh, if I may say predatory loans, and how they've affected the African continent. We're going to look at how, for example, this has caused some diaspora and Africans to react and how we can essentially build a healthy and equitable, equitable way of using this power dynamic to produce good outcomes for African diasporans and also indigenous Africans as well. So we have three other guests here with me. And as usual, I mean, we have one returning guest. We're gonna start with Ayomide. Kindly please tell us a bit more about yourself. And from there, Asakolo, you can go on. Abdi Salan, you can also go last. So let's start off with Ayomide. Just tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do. Hey, hi people. My name is um, Plantation. Um, my real name is, my artist name is Plantation. And my real name is Ayumide Tadrosho. I am a contemporary photographer based in Nantes, France. And I'm also based in Lagos, Nigeria. And my work is centered on the Black experience, um, reflecting the layers of the Black experience through my body um, in efforts to explore the institutionalization of our death and our suffering. So it's a lot of um, research, a lot of images, a lot of installations. So yeah, I'm an artist, I'm a friend of Adnan, I'm graduate of African Leadership Academy. I'm very excited to be part of this conversation space. Thank you so much, Ayomide. Asokolo, please introduce yourself as well. Hello, um, my name is Asakulu Songolo. I use he and his pronouns. I am currently um, Zooming in from Portland, Oregon, but in about a week, I start my first year at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. Um, I work, I'm Congolese, my family's Congolese, but I was born in Zambia um, and we immigrated here when I was one. So I've lived in America for 17 years um, and I have not returned to the continent since. Um, was planning to during COVID, but we know how travel restrictions um, really put a wrench in that plan. Um, but anyway, I work with um, a youth group called the Congo Peace Project fighting for 
um, menstrual and educational equity in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, particularly the Eastern Congo, which has been riddled with violence and war for over 20 years. And um, I, I am starting a new initiative through the Congo Peace Project called Pay Congo, which is centered around fighting for reparations from tech companies for um, mineral resources that are used in electronic devices. So I'm very excited to be here and to be joining this conversation with you all. Awesome and great backstory. I'm sure we'll delve a bit deeper into the issue of Congo as well, uh, into the uh, deeper into the podcast. That's actually a very, very interesting story and I'd like to hear more. Abdi Salan, please tell us a bit more about yourself. Hi, Absalan uh, Mohammed, Somali, Kenyan, living in Nairobi. I'm not the most wise among you, I think, because I've seen Adnan just on Instagram. Then I was like, he his his status and his everything that he does is just somehow informed me about more of African than I didn't knew before. So I'm now currently living in Nairobi and dropped out of school, college. Also, uh, I tried business then, it couldn't work out. So I just saw Nana and I was like, I need to have a deep hearing about his stuff and the way he talks, plus his podcast, saw some clips of him on Instagram. Just been in love with the kind of information he puts out there. Awesome. Welcome to the conversation. And also, yeah, just a side note for anyone who wants to also come onto the podcast. The idea is not to make it too academic, please. <laughs> That's not the goal of the podcast, but uh, anyone can come onto the podcast. And I'm just trying to get different voices from different backgrounds because, yeah, we're, we're talking a lot about the African experience. We're talking about a lot, a lot about the colonial experience and every single voice actually matters in those discussions. So let's get right into the conversation and talk about diasporan privilege. I mean, I've already talked about this. And I mean, for me, the first thing that I'll perhaps look into or I would like us to discuss is this idea of just access to resources in general. And I don't know if, I mean, there's, there's different sectors in which I've actually seen this. For example, budgets for projects, like, you know, art projects that essentially shape the way the world sees Africa. For example, just having access to worldwide publishing and not just worldwide publishers, like, you know, just people who can actually read your novels or not your novels, your novels, your history books, all these different kinds of publications and get them out there, they're disproportionately concentrated outside of the continent. And mainly the biggest publishers, you actually find them in the West. So I think this is something that also, it, it comes into a bigger discussion of brain drain, it not only just comes to this bigger discussion of, you know, diaspora and privilege, but the fact of the matter is, if you're in a position to actually, you know, relocate outside of the continent, you're also in a position to have access to changing the narrative of the continent. And I mean, I'm going to start off with, you know, just film in general, something like Black Panther really shaped the way people saw Africa. And it's not necessarily something that uh, I would say reviled African culture or it's something that, you know, insulted African culture, except for maybe, you know, some of the accents 
uh, though just a bit off. <laughs> but when you look at the, the what that film did and how it, I mean, some people were even just saying like, you know, that they'd immigrated from the African continent and a country in the African continent to the US, for example. And before Black Panther, they were always made fun of for their culture, et cetera. But after Black Panther, people was like, now it was like something that's in. So, I mean, I want to, let's, let's actually zero in on Black Panther. And I want to know what you guys, your thoughts are about like, you know, how, I mean, do you, do you feel comfortable with the way the African story was told in that particular film? And not only that, how do you guys think that we should, as, as indigenous Africans, get involved with that process of the storytelling of the continent? Hmm. I personally, for me, I feel like Black Panther at its time. Like, and then I remember when we all went to the cinema to watch it, like, you were so emotional after. Um, we were all so moved. It was South Africa. People were coming into the theaters with their, like, Ankara shirts. And people were so emotional after. But I think, I think after growing, I think I remember, like, the months after I was over it, I felt like it was a deep objective find of our culture. I felt it was deeply disrespectful in the sense that you're making this film for black people, but you don't have indigenous African actors. You don't have indigenous Kenyan actors. You don't have indigenous Nigerian actors, indigenous Congolese actors. And you're saying this film represents the black experience. The accents you're putting in there is not even specific to any culture. It's not new, it's not even a nuanced accent. It's just a generic um, coming to America African accent. It is, it's deeply disrespectful. I understand the impact of it, but you know, there was a post that, and I think I shared it to you on Instagram about the development of a new media where it's like a new kind of black media where it's explaining black culture to white people. And it's almost like black people are being spoon fed their own culture and they're being told that this is what your culture looks like. And I feel like it's, it's quite tragic that we're not allowed to exist as we exist. We have to be highly romanticized for the Black experience to be seen as valid. We have to be seen as revolutionaries, as being kings and princes. When really we were children of, of house helps, um, we're children of, 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 of drivers, we're children of, you know, we're children of slaves, we're children of, of, of people who are royals, we're children of merchants generations and generations that have no link to being warriors and princes and queens. We practice our indigenous spirituality because it was part of us. Until now, people practice their indigenous spirituality because it is part of them. Our names are spiritual by nature. Oluwa Kayomide means God has brought me joy. Oluwa Tobiloba means God is great. And it's part of our culture, it's part of our identity. So it is unnecessary for it to be broken down, objectified, objectified and infantilized for another audience. I feel like a lot of people in the West don't take the responsibility to understand Africa. And it's heartbreaking as an African to grow up that way, to be degraded every way. Africans are made fun of their accents, how they behave, how they function all over the media. There's like this prostituting of our suffering. Like, you know, you have, people being paid to photograph our suffering. And it's almost like our suffering is not seen as a valid way of existing. Like the act of fetching water, or I remember, you know, growing up in Lagos is 
you have a bucket in your bathtub, you put the water inside, then you take a pill and you bath. Why is that seen as being degrading? Why isn't that just seen as a valid way of existing that does not be that does not need to be explained and justified for an audience? Why can't the act of boiling hot water in a kettle, picking it up and pouring it into your buckets in your bathtub be seen as something that is just normal? Why does it have to be romanticized? Why does it have to be, oh, look at them, they are poor? I think I think it's really, it's it's like I Oftentimes it's like, would you really want to be born, be born in Africa? I mean, although African-Americans experience their own, we have like another type of suffering that they experience, years of being children of slaves, segregation, like the, the killing of like, um, the killing and burning down of their, you know, like the, the communities that had wealth, the black, black communities that had wealth that were burned to the ground, the stories, the suffering, but at the same time, I feel like as an African, I would like my own suffering to be respected and to not be romanticized and not to be removed just to bring you peace that your ancestors were once warriors, because that is not the truth. Yeah, I'm just going to add on to that, because I feel like a lot of people, even some people in the diaspora, like African Africans in the diaspora, they're not quite familiar with some of the nuances of culture. And the thing is, I, I appreciate some the, the effort that some people take in terms of going to the continent and actually finding out what are the different cultures. Like I did a series back, I think last year, and I was looking at uh, a cultural analysis of Black Panther and like what, what are the cultural implications of such a film and whether or, like whether or not some of the cultures were accurately represented. If you look at the clothing specifically, that seems to be the case. And if you look at some of the different practices, that's what was the case. But the thing is, the, obviously I already mentioned one of the issues had to be, and I'm not the only one who's mentioned this, but for example, uh, people talked about Killmonger or like, you know, the fact that the winner of the entire story, like, you know, Black Panther was, oh, let's give vibranium to the rest of the world essentially the rest of the world who also wants to colonize you for your resources and the person who was demonized they literally created what i would call a malcolm x and um uh martin luther king divide and people would even just like the, basically if you were to like map onto a character like you know someone specifically they'd be like oh killmonger is malcolm x and martin luther king is uh, t'challa right so i mean that's that's just my my reading of the entire script and the thing is, it was very interesting to just see how they almost demonized an anti-colonial character right someone they wanted someone who was like you know extremely passive or like you know when it came to the specific role it's not like they're going to be as all out as someone like Killmonger even though that's actually when you look at certain revolutionaries I mean look at the stories of the the Mau Mau for example in Kenya I mean that's exactly what they were, they were really trying to get out the colonizers and even if you look at uh, different you know, nations and how they dealt with colonizers, even Algeria, for example, they fought extremely hard and they weren't accommodating at all to this concept of colonialism. So for me, that was also one, one of the bigger issues that I took with the film. And it also comes down to this idea of, as a diasporan African, you could actually also be perpetuating traces of white supremacy, or you could be playing into stereotypes of the continent. For example, I recall even still on TikTok nowadays, this happens. 
yeah but sometimes the african accent is used purely as comedy in and of itself it's not used as for example and by african accent i mean like you know the stereotypical african accent it's not even like mapped to a certain area right it's just oh i'm going to talk like an african and i do whatever that means right they pick uh, someone picks a different type of accent they make it up and they call it an african accent or you can deduce that it's somewhat an african accent and they can then let's say the things that they're saying are not even that funny people just laugh at the accent itself right for me it's almost as if people are making a mockery of like you know how possibly you think africans speak even though you might not have even visited the continent but yes. that's also that's just it's me yeah. sorry so sorry for interrupting but it's digital blackface you know the ch- the mm. the children of the children of the diaspora that pa- the children of pa- of parents that moved to to the west are now making jokes about their own parents um invalidating their parents love by making fun of how their parents are intimate with one another. This is, there's basically this um, Ghanaian girl that makes fun of, she developed this character that falls in love with this, this man. And it's like a Ghanaian woman and she wears a wrapper and she has like, she carries things on her hair and she has a relationship with this man that also has like a strong Ghanaian accent. And she switches back and forth from her American accent and she creates this character that is so like a demented character, sorry, that's a really inappropriate word, but almost like a, a disturbed character that is like, hey, what do they say? I, I want to love you. I want to love you. And it's a very disturbing thing is that why would you invalidate people that speak that way? Why would you invalidate love that is that way? I think it's sad because growing up, whenever I watch Nollywood movies, I would think that that is not love. I'll watch them kiss each other and I'll think that they're too ras, they're too ghetto, and they're too um, they're too black for their love to be seen as valid. I don't know, I just think it's really sad that the diaspora find themselves doing digital black, blackface and menstruacy of African people. And I think it's something they should sit down with, is that now they have the privilege of the West and they're using that privilege of the West to make fun of their parents, their cousins, their families, and their classmates that live in Africa. I love that point. Um, I think that for a lot of us, we tend to forget or we tend to try to assimilate with um, American culture. And I always think of censorship in comedy specifically as not entirely a bad thing. Because when you think of censorship, it's about putting bounds to what you can say and to what is considered funny. Our subjugation and our, um, well, in and of itself, learning English and having to learn these colonial languages, it is subjugation, it is assimilation, right? So that trauma and that struggle for the majority of people, diasporans and people on the continent included, not being connected to their tribal languages and having to learn these colonial languages and then to turn around and particularly for diaspora and Africans to make accents out of them and to make fun of um, the way that people internalize these languages. It's, there's something about it that 
just rubs me the wrong way. And I think that sometimes, myself included, we try to find it funny and we try to laugh at our pain, but there's not necessarily much that is funny about it, right? Because this is real time colonialism, right? Not understanding and not knowing our tribal languages and then having to assimilate and then to make fun of the way that maybe our parents or our family back home um, speaks or articulates. I don't know, it just, it doesn't feel good. Um, and I think we need to have an honest, more honest conversations about dissecting that and moving away from it as a form of comedy. Yeah, I mean, I think it also traits, I mean, that, that entire concept of, oh, when Africans speak, it's funny. Then, I mean, like, you don't, or like people will call it like, let's say, you know, broken English or like, you know, it's not pronounced correctly. And I feel the same thing applies to PSC, but to a larger extent, it actually applies to mainly people from Africa, south of the Sahara. If you look at languages like French or German, the way people speak English, if they've grown up speaking that language natively, it's almost seen as natural. It's like, oh, you know what? It's a French accent of an English, you know? It's like, okay, yeah, it's fine. You know, I went to the car and like, you know, there's the, the, the R's and, you know, at the back of the throat. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's not necessarily, it's not linguistically correct if you're speaking English. The, God forbid though, if let's say uh, someone from, uh, from, let's say a Kikuyu, for example, from Kenya, right? Uh, some of them speak when they speak English because obviously the Kikuyu tongue is a bit different, right? The L's would be pronounced like an R, right? And then all of a sudden that just becomes like, you know, something like as, as something oh, we should laugh at. I mean, I've never really understood the duality of that concept because it's the same linguistic mistake that's happening. Why is it that we're treating them differently? And it's almost as if like, you know, if you're, if you're speaking an African language or whatever, it's like, it's not, it's not seen as a, it's, it, it also ties into like class and everything. It's not seen as a language as professional or anything like that. You know, you have to speak English and like sort of code switch. I mean, sort of code switch if you want to, even amongst, like I'm saying amongst the people that also speak the language to make it seem like, for example, you've either like made it or whatever. Like for you, even speaking English is like, it's a, it's a status symbol, right? That's the, the, the sort of stage that is actually reached. So I think that there's a lot that needs to be considered. And even, I mean, it's reminding me of this series uh, called Dear White People. And yeah, it's supposed to be about black liberation. It's supposed to be about, you know, black people just, you know, they started this podcast and like, you know, uh, holding accountable the white people in the school, stuff like that. It's about them breaking the system. But in that film, they literally started perpetuating these white supremacist stereotypes of what an African in quotes accent sounds like. So you had one guy that was allegedly from Kenya and I was like, oh, okay, he's from Nairobi. I got excited, yeah? Uh, this was a while back. So I don't even know if I remember the exact details of the, the scene, but I do remember this, yeah? So he was allegedly from East Africa specifically maybe Nairobi. I think they said Nairobi. And this guy just said, okay, they, they said, why don't you speak the language or something? And he started clicking. So it was like, and I mean, I was wondering like, sorry, can, that which clicking languages exist in Kenya? And I was, that's not, that's not how you speak Swahili, right? Nowhere close, Swahili is not a clicking language, right? 
And if anything, if you want to go to a place where clicking languages are very common, you can go, there's some places in Tanzania and also many places in Southern Africa, specifically Southern Africa, right? So, I mean, I was just there like, how does that even, I mean, that's embarrassing. Like, are you not embarrassed? Like, how can you be misrepresenting our stories like that? So I feel like you, there's a privilege that diaspora and Africans in general have, especially if you're in the West, in terms of access to telling Africa's story on the media, yeah? And focusing on certain parts of history in the media. And we'll get into academia later. But that privilege hasn't necessarily been used in the best ways possible, you know? Yeah, Nanya, like, sure, right? So I remember watching um, Dear, Dear White People. I feel like Dear White People is like a testimony to that, again, that Twitter post I shared to you about um, media made to, to explain the Black experience for white people. And it was filled with colorism. And it was just a very weird show. And when the African character was there, his accent did not sound African at all. Like it was not even Kenyan. I would have never known it was Kenyan. And they, could, they did a good job at humanizing him, but you could sense the difference between the African-American communities and African communities. I do know that Africans are very anti-Black, are deeply, deeply anti-Black. And there's a lot of judgment and degrading of African-Americans' experiences. I think it's normal all throughout my life. I remember growing up as a Nigerian, even until last year, when we now had like the Black Lives Matter, it was always like um, this buzzword of the reason why African-Americans are the way they are is because they're lazy. In Niger and you know, a lot of Nigerians will say this, that how come when, when I go to Nigeria, I don't, notice it, I don't notice the racism and I just focus and I do my work. But African-Americans are too sensitive. And, you know, I even repeated that kind of rhetoric. And it's like, it's, you cannot compare your experience as an African to the experiences of African-Americans. Like it's, it's like, you know, like I, I want people to visualize South Africa. And, you know, South Africa was just free like 30 years ago and everything is fresh. The pain is still there. The suffering is still there. And that is the same thing for African-Americans. The years of deliberately destroying their ability to grow, destroying communities, destroying homes, mass incarceration, turning black people into slaves once again through the prison industrial system, putting them in the army, killing them off. It is like years of, of investing in the death of black people in America. The anti-blackness is so deep. The racism is so deep. So I do also want to say that Africans are very anti-Black. They don't understand the nuances of the Black experience. And it all ties back to white supremacy. I think Africans have internalized so much white supremacy. You know, as a Nigerian, whenever you hear Nigerians complain about Nigeria, they're always like, it's our leaders. Nigerians are just lazy. You, white people know how to work together, but Nigerians know how to work together. You know, I remember growing up with my pastor. I'm not religious anymore, but my pastor will be like, Nigerians are lazy. White people know how to work together, but we don't know how to work together. If you see the story of Noah and the Ark and his two sons, I think there were like three sons that one of the sons did something. And then his, his generation are black children. So that's why black people don't do well because we don't know how to work together. We don't know how to arrange things. 
and white people now to work together and white people are more intelligent. We've internalized so much white supremacy that we don't understand the root of majority of our problems is our leaders that have worn white face to destroy our, our, our resources and form relationships with organizations like the World Bank, like Shell, to completely destroy the African landscape. So it's not, you know, I feel like a lot of times we forget that it's not about the individual, especially with the conversation of climate change. It's not necessarily about us. It's about the 1%, it's about the bourgeoisie. It's about, it's about people like Jeff Bezos. It's about people like Mark Zuckerberg. It's about people Bill like- Bill Gates. Bill Gates, you know? And it's, it's, it's deeper than a person. I, I, I think it's, honestly, I feel like it's really tragic to live in today's world. Like it's really, capitalism has really deceived people into thinking that their hands are the ones that have caused the problems they have today. I agree. And I think it's interesting because the truth and reality and all the things that people need to understand these systems, especially and specifically in the West, um, for diasporans and people across race, across genders alike, is at our disposal, right? You can Google these things. There are articles, there are academic papers. And the thing is that these rich people, they thrive off of people that aspire to be like them. And they also thrive off of people who look the other way when they understand that something is wrong. And this is particularly why our politics is so stained with blood, because we elect our politicians and we tell people, particularly Black people, particularly people of marginalized genders and identities, that this person is your savior. This person is who you're supposed to be voting for. You're doing a disservice to the whole group by not voting for them. And we saw it with Joe Biden. And we see it across the West actually with these electoral politics where we are told who is best for us. And then we use our collective power to vote for them. And then there's nothing to show for that. And I think that is very interesting because now we're seeing a coup d'etat in Guinea uh, happening as we speak, a military coup d'etat that is orchestrated by France, right? And France is an ally of the US and we're seeing these things happening. And as if we don't know, do not have Guinean um, immigrants in the United States, as if we do not have Guinean immigrants in France who oppose this and who mo more likely than not voted for these people who are going to end up killing their lands, their lands, killing their people. And so I think it's tragic that there are so many avenues of knowledge and so much resources at our disposal um, to organize, to work with that we are not tapping into and that we're not necessarily working with. I mean, I feel like that is such a strong point like um, this idea that we're not tapping into, but I feel like it's much more nuanced than that. I feel like the gravity of the amount of lack people are living through is overwhelming. Like oftentimes we talk, oftentimes I find myself talking about these strong political ideas and you know, doing research about my projects and my work. And you know, when you face the lack and the inability 
the poverty that people are going through. It's like a lot of people don't have time to work together because they're deeply suffering. You know, I was in Paris for the holiday and I was seeing so many Nigerian sex workers undocumented. And I was in Chapeau and I was walking around and, you know, I saw this Nigerian woman talking to a man, clearly like a 409 man. And he was telling her that he, he has an apartment that she can live in. And she was like, no, 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 don't worry. I have a house of babies that I'm living with. And it's like, this, the, you know, she didn't have enough, I'd, as you can tell, she probably didn't have the right amount of papers and documentation to work, like, to not be in sex work. And sometimes a lot of Nigerian women are trafficked from Italy. And I feel like the amount of inability that is in the world and the lack and the suffering is so much that the conversation of working together feels impossible. Like I, right. I it's, right, it's debilitating, right? The amount of, honestly, the resources that people, people do not have access to the basic resources and necessities they need to survive. And so how do we call on these same people who should be at the forefront on our, of our movements um, as the most marginalized? How do we call them to organize when they're simply trying to get through the day? And also, and also you know, even questions of our passports. You know, she does not have the right documentation to work. So many people don't have the right documentation to exist. And they're running away from suffering in Nigeria to be trafficked and to enter a system where they can't work properly and they're open to exploitation. And the inability that comes with having an African passport. The truth is that if you are not rich and you have an African passport, you do not exist on this world. If you are rich and you have an African passport, you can exist. If you are not rich and you have an African passport, more specifically West African, then you do not exist. And it's, it's so tragic. Which is why, like, I'm, I always feel like, you know, as a dias as diaspora, and also African Americans and Africans in the West should really reflect on their privilege to be able to move. A lot of Africans don't have that privilege to move, and as as we're waiting for the refugee crisis, because you know, the you know, for climate change, they're going to show what's going on in Germany, what's going on in America, but what's going on in Africa is not going to be pushed as much, because in truth, we don't really matter. You know, the storms that are happening in Lagos, they're not really talking about it. You know, what's going on in Africa will not be showing. And as millions of refugees are coming out of this, would they be allowed to move? Would they be allowed to exist? And you saw, well, we should also talk about the role of social media in destroying people's voices. I look at Adnan's TikTok and the violence of TikTok. Like TikTok is the most violent app in our generation. The, the, the direct hit towards Black people. I've never seen an app that is so invested in destroying Black people. Like, it's actually incredible. And, you know, we're seeing modern-day colonialism with um, Palestine. And Instagram shadow banned me for reposting about Palestine so many times. That till now, because of fear, because I work as an artist, because of fear, that I'm not going to be able to use my Instagram properly to reach my audience. I have not put anything about Palestine on my story because they shadow banned me completely. They let me, like from 
200 from a thousand people seeing my content to to 500 people the next week after because i was posting so much about palestine and everything is surface level they only push what will allow them to seem that they are aware like this that whole afghanistan week they don't actually give a give an interest it's just picking and choosing who afghanistani afghanistani women are suffering bro people that were not in kabul Women not in Kabul were suffering. It's always been there in the hands of the American soldiers, the Afghanistan soldiers, and also the Taliban. And they'll also manipulate these stories, right? They'll manipulate the fact that the U.S. trained militant groups that ended up taking over Afghanistan. And so now they're shipping U.S. military out of Kabul before they ship out people. Right, we have people that are dying because they're clinging onto U.S. planes, trying to get out of the country that was ruined by these same people who are now fleeing and who are now saying it's unsafe for them to remain there. Yeah, I just want to briefly add. I mean, we've talked a lot about a few different topics over here, but I think it just—I mean, I want to insert academia and just—we've already mentioned resources in the conversation. I want to briefly talk about development discourse and how that is also something that's been gentrified and it's already it started off as a colonial project and this is something that's undisputed if you want to look at colonial laws before independence and you look at development laws you can look at things like the Swinerton plan you can look at things as the like the million acre settlement scheme in Kenya in the uh, you know early 1950s onwards these were development programs and the people who are in charge of these programs essentially went to the forefront of organizations like the World Bank and the IMF to essentially, in quotes, develop Africa. And I want to talk about how academia in and of itself is actually very much exclusionary. And it's perhaps a caution to uh, African academics outside the continent. And just, you know, it's something that we really need to think about. Even the discourse on development, you know, the, Af- the Africans that are involved in that discourse, right? But even the idea of development in and of itself, it's like developing towards what? I mean, all of these things are normative and they're all based on societal interpretations of what that development is, right? So the question is like, is it even healthy for us as Africans to exist in a state of academia? And you're talking about you know, things like development, et cetera. Is that space even facilitative of our ideas? Right, because a lot of us just want to actually the the I mean a lot of scholars, especially black scholars, now actually going to the point where we're just saying we don't want development discourse, because it's actually one of those things that perpetuates colonialism and neocolonialism, trying to make these countries conform to a Western hegemonic idea of what development is, right? So I mean, black academics in the West specifically need to also realize the, the amount of privilege that you have in academia. The thing is, a lot of these development plans are based off of research. And this research is usually taken from different groups, mainly outside of the continent. Because even if they're African authors or the African academics, they're struggling to get published. Even for example, like a historian by the name of Felix Chami, he's, a, he's from Tanzania. Like he's someone who's doing solid work in terms of archaeology in East Africa. And the thing is, he would never get, I mean, he's, he's not going to get that funding 
at least for now, for the archaeological work that he's doing. He's been waiting to get funding and probably even needs more funding just to do the work that he's doing. And obviously that's because of partly, you know, government corruption, also due to colonialism, resources are not being allocated around the world equitably. But now imagine, for example, if you wanted to do a project in the US or even here in the UK, it's so much easier to get research grants and the facilities that you have access to, there's so much of that. So the thing is, it's like, it's not even just where, like where, oh, the archaeologist's name is Felix Chami. And he, he works mainly on, uh, he's looking at Roman pottery that was actually found. And it's used as evidence to show that Romans were trading with Africans as far down as, you know, the bottom of Tanzania. Specifically, there's an island called Mafia. That's where he's doing a lot of work. So um, it's really interesting research, by the way. By all means, go and support him and support his research, who's doing really, really important work in terms of African history. But even the discourses on African history, for example, African authors are having to move abroad in order to establish them as an authority in a field. Take, for example, Joseph Inikori. Joseph Inikori is a professor at the University of Rochester, and he's one of the leading, and may I say the only, one of the only names that I know of that is willing to come and stand in front of academics in Oxford, academics in Cambridge, academics at these huge institutions, and actually draw a connection between the transatlantic slave trade and the Industrial Revolution. This is something, again, that was you know, inherited from um, uh, the former, uh, I mean, the first prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago, uh, Tobago as well. He managed to write a book about it, Eric Williams. He wrote Slavery and Capitalism, the linkage between those two things. So the thing is, these people, I mean, obviously Eric Williams had to go and, I mean, he had the scholarship and he was given a scholarship to go to Oxford. The thing is, it's gotten to the point where, like, if you want to establish yourself as an authority, as an African in the academic world, to have an impact in the way the world sees Africa and to have an impact in the way things are done in Africa by the outside world, you have to move out of the, the continent. I mean, that's, that's essentially what we're saying. Or at least you have to get involved in maybe research in places like South Africa, where it's now becoming to is beginning to be become more open. But even in South Africa, black academics are still getting less in terms of research grants compared to white academics. And those are, I mean, some numbers that I can pull up for you guys later. But what are your thoughts on that? Like on the exclusivity of academics and like how do we actually, you know, solve that problem? Especially, and we don't want, for example, people, even black academics, speaking over indigenous Africans when it comes to these. Topics. What are your thoughts on that, guys? Um, I think that even as an artist, it's kind of this similar experience of how a lot of um, Nigerian artists are not as empowered. They're in schools that do not empower them, do not help them. And many artists run away. They're looking for the exit points. I myself ran away. I mean, it's always been in the plan to run away. I ran away to South Africa when I was 16. And then I ran away again to France when I was 19. And I feel like it's devastating that we have to leave to exist. I feel like that, that is just the nature of what it means to be African. It's this, it's, this, it's this strive for perfection just to enter their spaces. We have to be 20 times better to be accepted and to enter. We have to be excellent. There's no, me, there's no real meritocracy. I think something that the West has is mediocrity. There is just this culture of mediocrity that they will never ever know that they have. 
and the deep pressure that comes with being an African to be perfect with how you speak, with how you write, with how you communicate, with how you work. And it's just devastating. In terms of the works of researchers, you see that, like, it's so sad, like in, especially in Nigeria, a lot of researchers are not empowered. The government does not empower them. I feel like what is commendable about the West is they empower their researchers, they empower their artists, they empower their writers through grants, through systems, through like socialist and grant things that are based off the works of black and brown people. You know, you know, France is getting its free money from its, its past um, colonial countries. So it can do things like grants, it can subsidize a lot of things, but I think it comes down to our governments and how they are not putting in laws to really empower our academics, our researchers and our artists. Like in Nigeria, a lot of doctors are leaving. I think there was something about doctors were supposed to travel to Dubai because in Dubai, they kind of did this thing where they were calling for Nigerian doctors. And I think the doctors were reflecting about it on Twitter that the Nigerian government put in, brought in police to stop all of them from going to to going from going to Dubai in the airport. I don't know whether or not that story is real. I saw it on Twitter and it was trending for a bit. And yeah, I think it falls down to the hands of our governments and the fact that they do not care to empower our people and our stories. A lot of our leaders and our researchers are dying away. You know, in Nigeria, we often celebrate Wale Shrenka, but there are thousands of Wale Shrenkas. You know, growing up in a bookstore, my grandmother making the first bookstore in Lagos and like a renowned bookstore. Um, my father and our intimacy to like researchers and writers, you see them all old, they sit down, they have their tea, they discuss, but they're not celebrated. Their names are not buzzing. You have like in University of Ibadan, you know, my dad is, my dad buys like these archive history research books written by professors, crazy archives, man, because the archives I have in my house is just incredible. And, you know, we have those, those researchers are dying away. They are not being celebrated. You have iconic filmmakers that made films that, that like established like Nigerian cinematography and they're not archived. History is removed from the curriculum in Nigeria. The depths of the Biafra war is not spoken about. There's a culture of silence and erasure. Our leaders and our historians and our academics are not celebrated because it benefits one thing. Ignorance is beneficial. So our leaders are not going to empower them. I'm not as educated on the question you ask, the question you ask, but this is what I can offer in terms of my reflections on that. I love that reflection. I think as someone who is interested in uh, moving back to the continent eventually, it's very interesting when I talk to people, particularly Congolese elders in the States, and they constantly say, well, you should stay here. Maybe you should save enough money here. You should stay here for a good amount of time and then go there because you will have to make opportunity for yourself and you will not find the opportunities there that you will find here. And it's funny because the lack of opportunities there is because of the subjugation that continues to happen in the Congo and across, Af across Africa. How companies like Apple, Google, Microsoft, Tesla, their kids and their grandchildren are set for life. 
right? Their CEOs, their their children, their whole family lines are set for life. And those livelihoods are built off of the backs of Congolese people, off of mining communities, off of miners, off of this violence that allows um, these companies to masquerade as, to masquerade and, and to practically steal and the, without, with impunity pretty much and to steal and to take these resources that could make the Congo a rich country, that could make the Congo a superpower, right? We have these resources, we have everything at our disposal to do it, but we do not have the infrastructure we do not have the tools to, to actually do it, right? And so the West only has these abilities to subsidize research and to give scholarships to students and to support academics because of the wealth that they are gaining from these countries. And I think it's very telling um, when I read somewhere that, that um, in the West, the West lifestyles are uh, funded by the global West, the global South's poverty. And I think that's very telling. Um, and that's what we see across Africa, right? So. I don't know, it's kind of interesting as someone who is interested in being an academic and moving um, to the country, what does that look like? What does it look like to uplift these histories when the countries in and of itself, the governments are colonial plants, right? These governments are funded by, funded by the West. And so they will not platform academics who speak out against the West, who try to draw these connections like the academics that you mentioned. Um, and so, I don't know, I think it's, an interesting and nuanced conversation. But I also think that um, it makes sense why they're not platforming them, right? Because as Ayomide said, ignorance is bliss. If the people do not know that this research is going on, if the people do not, are not, do not have access to these academic papers, to these archives, to really understand and thoroughly come in contact with their history, then they, more often than not, do not have the tools to revolt and do not have the tools to question their government, which is really the seeds of liberation and of freedom. I also, I really agree with you. I also feel like it's a time of urgency for those who are listening to begin to think critically and creatively. You know, as an artist myself, there's like a rush for perfection for me for establishing myself. I'm very lucky to be, you know, a Nigerian artist because it's not as saturated I'm being like a French artist. But there's an urgency for me to create critically and to understand space, to understand identity and reflect this in the installation space. You know, there are questions on the exhibition space. More than a white wall, it is seen as a space of refuge, a vessel to critique the layers of apathy you know, as an African, we carry a lot of apathy, especially privileged Africans. There's deep apathy towards our suffering. There's deep privilege, especially when you go to British curriculum schools, the, the casualty, the privilege you have, the going, waking up in the morning in a driver, and then, you know, going back home, you have house helps, you have a nanny. And it's like, who are you to speak on Black suffering? Who are you to voice the revolution? So more than just speaking, it's a time to create spaces of archives. You know, 
a moving library where it's books are collected and their conversation spaces in an attempt to break the ceiling or break to break the shield and also to reflect on who our leaders are. There's an urgency for physical spaces like Paran Nation, for archive spaces filled with books, for people actually invested in the freedom of black people. It's 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 like it's it's really serious stuff. Like people are so caught up by the loudness of it all, they're not really thinking about how to engage with people. For example, for me, I am so I take like I cannot appropriate subcultures in my space. Just because I'm black does not mean I have every right to go to subcultures in Lagos and take from them. Because these marginalized subcultures, what am I doing to actually impact and engage them? So I take pictures of them, I put them in galleries, I, pro I prostitute black suffering, put them in galleries and they don't reap the profits. So how am I going to examine, how do I bring these marginalized spaces into these classes and deeply anti-black art spaces? So you have to think in the box, out the box. You have to think in a humanized way. It could mean setting up a, a car with kids from like Bariga and you put them in a bus and you take them to exhibition spaces or you take them to your installation space. It's thinking how do we go on the ground and actually engage with people, especially in times of urgency, such as now, especially in times of climate change, because it's more than just end times. We're talking about human extinction and we are facing it. It's tragic that our grandparents got to die before this and our parents are going to die before this. And now it will be us that will be facing extinction. So how are we going to liberate black people around this time? How are we going to liberate people that have not been allowed to be liberated for years? You know, it's a lot to really think of. There's so much to think about. Like it's, it's actually a lot if one just, you know, yeah, <clears throat> I'm just gonna, yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna close off based on obviously what you said, uh, but I wanna relate it perhaps to an experience that I had just to sort of relate everything back to the main topic of, you know, that privilege. Thing is, I feel like some people once in that position, when they look at the, like, you know, suffering, et cetera, all these different things, <clears throat> that are happening on the, uh, the the African continent, you get some people who are very complacent and very much entitled and they choose to separate themselves from the continent. Despite, for example, and I always tell people this, like, you know, you'll have some black people who separate themselves from the, the continent, mainly if you're like, you know, a diasporan African. And let's say you come from the US or you're Afro-Caribbean or whatever, and then you cut yourself from the, off from the continent. But the same reason for your oppression is the fact that you have African roots. And also because your roots are also kind of related to your color and your color is one of the main reasons for your oppression as well so for me it was just very it's odd that even someone for example could come on tiktok and she came on and she's like an african-american girl came on during the nsars protests and came with her entire chest and said you know you don't have to count on us to save you all the time and you know it just sounded so arrogant and entitled and it's almost as if you know the way some some Americans think that the, the the center of the world and the world revolves around them and all their issues is like you know what I, I I can't help you right now basically, acting as if like she had the individually by the way she individually had the the power to just change the entire situation in Nigeria like who are you <laughs> right on one hand you have people like that 
But then you, on the other hand, you have people who feel like they can come into the continent and just sort of do what they want and like impose their vision onto the people without even consulting them. And like, I remember I was in a clubhouse room a few months ago and I remember this guy talking about how they were talking about how they wanted to revolutionize Nigeria. And they're talking about how they wanted to, as we said, this dream of black capitalism. And they said, you know what, we need billionaires, right? And I was like, how do you think you're going to get billionaires without exploiting other Africans to get there, right? I mean, like, yeah, the thing is, yeah, you can accumulate some level of wealth, but it reaches a point whereby your, your sources are going to be very dubious after, after a while. So they mentioned, you know, they want to use oil or something like that, or Nigeria needs billionaires. And the thing is, we need to just go into uh, go get, buy big properties, you know, go into I'm sorry, government. And essentially we already rule. have we already have billionaires. What's I mean, the, the, <laughs> well, the thing is, yeah. First of all, yes. So that point was also not only ignorant, but they were saying that you know we need people mainly from the U.S. who have a lot of money. The thing is, what he was trying to say is that he wants to essentially propose a plan of Nigerian <laughs> dominance. <laughs> yeah, basically, that's what that's what he was saying, right? And I was like, that's just, it's extremely odd because the thing is like, where are the, where are the community consultations that you've had in this entire thing? Do you even yeah. know a single thing about different cultures well, in Nigeria? You to know, I'm not sorry for interrupting you. That's basically what happened with Burner Boy. You know, Burner Boy in his music, in his music he was like, the, the reason why Nigerians have not done is because they're, they're afraid. They're afraid to be revolutionaries. That Nigerians, I'll speak for you. When answers came, if they don't say anything, for like, mm. <laughs> so you are clowning and dragging his name. These people will be parading revolution, but they don't know how to actually engage, how to do research. This is why we need academics. We need people more educated than me, because me, I'm talking nonsense. We need people. We need people that are on the ground and have done research. Yeah. And a revolution for now, a revolution for all. And it's not like this, like playing in and out musicians coming. There's a do you know this person called inter intersexual history? So inter inter I'll show you the YouTuber. She made this crazy video on like um she made this crazy video on like the history of like sexual politics. And you, I'll send you the link, you should watch it. Like sitting down to watch her videos, she did this video about exactly what you're talking about, the need for black academics. And it was like, it blew my mind. Like there are very few, like there are very few African academics that are propped up. And it's like, are you really silly? We already had billionaires in Nigeria. Like, what are you talking about? And you know, and, and it was something that I wanted to even bring up in the beginning. When I, you know, I grew up with a lot of wealthy people and I grew up with wealth. And especially when Buhari came in, a lot of that wealth would really be. Um, but like growing up, I was disgusted when I would see Nigerians parade their wealth. I was disgusted when my classmates would tell me I've traveled this holiday. Like my classmates would travel every holiday and they would boast about it. And you know, sometimes I cannot bear to watch someone in Lagos living in, on the island in a big place and traveling every day, every holiday. There are YouTubers I like that. But how come I can watch like an African-American, you know, you know, there's this whole trend of like um, black women wealth on TikTok of like, um, um, I think it's black, 
it's like about black women will be wealthy. And I realized that like, I have seen the burnt of black capitalism, which is egocentric and is not community based. Like this whole idea of, you know, Jay-Z saying, I'll buy the block. So after you buy the block, what systems are you putting in place to empower the block, to kill the system of, of landlords, to kill the yeah. system of gentrification? What are you doing? We have the I same think time. that also, mm. I'm sorry, yeah. I think that also goes back to what you said about Burna Boy, right? What you said about these people who parade themselves as our leaders, as people we should look up to. He makes good music, but that doesn't mean that he should be this almighty person who we look to mm. in times of revolution, right? Mm. He should not be this person that we look towards to save us. Because at the end of the day, as a person who he needs to protect his capital. Mm. He's going to try to protect his capital. And even we've seen now with um, how WizKid let Justin Bieber onto Essence, right? With when the song that he has with Thames. And we see this sort of commodification of Afrobeats, mm. this growing, mm. not just commodification of African experiences, mm. but this commodification of our music, this commodification mm. of our culture, right? We saw that, um, I don't even know what brand it was, but we saw this brand sell literal bags that you can find in Nigeria and Ghana and they repurposed them and they sold them for like $1,000 a piece. We see this commodification of our resource of the things that we live yeah. off of every day. We see this commodification of these things. Yeah. And, and it's crazy because for so long they were seen as foreign, as disgusting mm. as backwards and now they're seen as trendy as beautiful mm. as radiant and so I think that we need to fight against that right we're mm. seeing that these people are taking our dances right it's just it's interesting what is left for us what mm. is still ours right because if we cannot claim what's ours then how do we move forward from the revolution with a revolution? How do we move forward with our revolutionary ideas if we can't even point towards something that is solely ours, something that mm. cannot be taken from us, something mm. that we can gatekeep, something mm. that we, we as Africans, we as Africans across the diaspora are able to support continental Africans in rejecting this commodification of what is ours and rejecting mm. this idea that we need to be acceptable to the West. Hmm. You know, it was like, you know, sorry, so sorry, Adnan, like this conversation is like, it's just like the juice is in here. Like, it's like how Beyonce, you know, personally, I'm not a really big fan of Beyonce. Many Africans are not. Like, I don't know, for some like people in the beehive that are African-Americans, it's like, but like a lot of Africans do not like Beyonce. Like, it's like, they don't really get the obsession. But, um, it was how in Beyonce's video, she, I think maybe her team, they copied the one of the works of this like South African collective between a husband and a wife. And they're called, um, I've forgotten the name, Rara Nembad. She's a creative director for her husband. And they copied the music video. It's how Beyonce appropriates from African artists. Like I don't have a problem with Black is King because Beyonce worked with Black, Nigerian, Kenyan, African artists to make the video, but there was a clash. She puts the story of Yemanja mixing it with the story of Zulu people. And it was like, 
again, you know, my uncle makes this joke that African-American intellectuals will take the name Wale, <laughs> will take the, the name Wale Nkola or something. <laughs> like, they'll take a Yoruba name and mix it with a South African name. <laughs> and they will call themselves like, they'll call them, they'll call themselves like Wale Ayanda. And it's like, <laughs> and it's yeah. like, they're not so seriously. But it was like, you know, Beyonce can do that. And then she cannot sing like Tiwa Savage. And Tiwa Savage will not get that same level that Beyonce is getting. Drake cannot put whiskey in his music video, but Drake can come out and start singing like in Afro beats and people will start screaming. How dare you? No, it was, it was disgusting, honestly, because I just recently listened to Somebody's Son by Tiwa Savage. And I really appreciated how Brandy took the time to learn the language and to learn mm. her lines before she jumped on the track. And so you see that there are people who are intentional about mm. appreciating this culture, but we see people that are only intentional on profiting from it. Beyonce is only now realizing that African culture is profitable. And so as a person who is marketable, and as a person who is popular across the world, she can market Africa as this beautiful thing, but then she can take these cultures and misrepresent them and mm. have this total clash between but them. Could I, could I perhaps add on to that? Because the thing is, I myself am not too involved in the music scene, but I do notice, for example, and I've heard from several people that you're actually finding now K-pop is now incorporating elements of African culture. <laughs> and oh you know my the, God. this like, is actually like I know like I actually like yeah. what's that like no like do you know how much black face is in K-pop? Like K-pop is deeply anti-black. Like it's so they want to take Afrobeats. Like they need yeah. to be more even Bollywood is anti-black. Bollywood yeah. they constantly have the darker it's very colorist. They constantly have the darker skinned Indian people and Afro-Indian people playing the servers, playing their servants, playing these subservient characters who can never necessarily be the hero, right? Yeah, and not only that, I just want to tie it back to, obviously, what the diaspora can do. Because I think I, I, I mentioned this privilege like at the beginning for a reason. I actually would argue that given the access to these resources and the right to, I mean, the access to these spaces, and these platforms, the diaspora are actually extremely key in being able to preserve what is the authentic African story. And not, it's not, I wouldn't even just say the authentic African story, because that implies that there's just one. The African stories of people from different sides of the continent with different experiences. Okay. And it's so, so important that that can only happen with some form of communication. They cannot be a 100%. Right? And for me, it's like, you know, this is why we need to stop these diaspora wars and we need to actually get into more conversations that are actually more about understanding and bridging that gap because for example now it's like if the world is not going to give us those platforms especially to indigenous africans we can work as a team to actually get people in those spaces whether it's black academia whether it's in development discourse whether that happens to be in the fields of art whether that happens to be in the fields of international governance we need more indigenous African voices in these spaces. We need and to the defer only way to, to get that. Continent. We yeah. need to defer to people that are living on the continent, people that are bearing the brunt mm -hmm. of these systems that we are ultimately, these systems that we also suffer from, but in some ways we're also benefiting, benefiting. from, right? Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I'm going to Stanford, I'm going to Stanford University. And if you think about it, who goes there? We have the we have the children of these tech moguls, these tycoons who are stealing from our countries. Those are the people that are going there, right? So what does it look like to defer to the continent? We need to give resources and we need to talk to them, right? We need to ask what they want because a big thing about the United Nations and about these charities, quote unquote, is that they tell them what they need, right? They go there and they're quote unquote peacekeepers. But the reason we don't have peace is because of people that look like you continuing to insert yourselves into on our land and continuing to pick sides and tearing apart our the relations that we have and the negotiations and the treaties that we have had for centuries before you came onto our continent. So I think it's important if we get grants to pay continental Africans to tell their stories, right? If we get resources to, to ask them, what are the things that you need? What are the things that you lack? What are the things that you believe will, yes, that you will believe will enhance your quality of life? Or what things do you think are missing from the current stories that you see coming out of Africa? What is the nuances of the situation, of the violence that are that is happening? What is the nuances of the different sides? What is the conflict actually about? Because we constantly get one-sided narratives and we constantly get these reporters who exploit, who take pictures. And I think it was, I don't know where I saw it, but I saw that trauma porn is a billion dollar industry. Snapping these pictures of, snapping these pictures of Africans who are suffering and repurposing them for the UN, for for these organizations to then say, we need your money and support. No, we need mutual aid. We need that money to go to continental Africans. We need these resources to go directly to people who are in need. I'm not through these other organizations who, for the most part, do not serve us. I yeah. feel like I feel like also the conversation of um, like um, trauma porn is um, like another thing, especially with me being an artist. I was in a friend's house today and we had like a deep conversation about this. Like, there needs to be a lot of accountability in the hands of academics and those who are very educated in terms education in terms of like colonial education and neo-colonial education and westernized education. There needs to be a lot of responsibility and accountability in the hands of photographers, in the hands of writers, because you know, Nigerian photographers are collaborating with newspapers to give these pictures. Um, you have Nigerian contemporary photographers and artists that are photographing shoots of marginalized people and they're not actually giving any of the funds back to these marginalized people. And also I think now to end the diaspora wars is to kind of confront the uncomfortable conversations. It's time to critique our black capitalists. It's time to have open conversations of people, of people like Rihanna of people like um, Beyonce, of of people that are invested or we don't really understand like the depths of their wealth. Like when we hear $1 billion, we start clapping for the person. $1 billion, like that is, 
that is like in that is in it's in, almost like, the gdp of some countries by the way like it's like literally frightening like it's like we really need to start critiquing the black capitalists because their wealth will never save you like it's not even coming down to you like you can scream for them the same like it's the same thing with my my parents it's like you can scream for buhari this man will never save you especially since like a lot of people are screaming for Buhari. You can scream for Dangote. You can scream for Tedola. You know what pained me was that Tedola's daughters were posting about answers on their Twitter accounts. And then there's no conversation on how their father has invested in the suffering of Nigerian people. It's like the children of, cap of Black capitalists get to parade Blackness and revolution without critiquing their parents' hands. Uh -huh. and it's uh -huh. so interesting it's like it's such an interesting thing you know okay guys i think i mean obviously it's the the conversation is really it's it's good and i think that i always tell people that you know you can never really fully finish these conversations in a podcast but right this is this is probably even a sign that we might need a part two about you know looking at you know those tangible solutions about how we can actually get the diaspora and Africans that are indigenous to the continent, how to get us to connect and to make meaningful, not just connections, but just meaningful connections and how we can, as you said, defer to the continent and create meaningful solutions that are both good for diaspora and Africans and they're good for Africans that are currently living on the continent. So thank you guys so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. And I appreciate your, your takes and your opinions and i guess we'll see you guys in the next episode next week